I think for me, one of the highlights during the summer has been having some of our friends from the different restored churches coming in and sharing and just kind of experiencing their gifts and the way God has wired them and the way they teach and preach. And it's been so much fun having Tom and Ashley and Danny in just sharing through the Psalms uh, in their own way and the way that God has wired them and just using them to minister to us and encourage us in prayer. Um, And today we've got the one and only Bradley, Kelvin Luther, (laughs) Michael Sarian here to share with us. And um, if you don't know, Brad was a part of this church for years, um, part of like the kind of initial launch and uh, leading of this community. He's um, invested much here, but we sent him out years ago to go back to Northridge, his hometown, the valley, uh, where he's planted Restored LA, which is just a beautiful community that is just doing so, so well there. Uh, And yeah, it's just a beautiful group of people that God has brought together. Um, And he is a beautiful man. He's fun. He's funny. He's got a great mind. He's got a wonderful teaching gift. And I think he's been one of the people that has encouraged me so much in conversation and from sermons over the years. Um, Brad has got a beautiful brain and a, a really amazing way with words. But I think one of the things he does more than that, like just the way that God has gifted him, is he really does encourage you to serve Jesus And I think he's going to engage you today and like move some of the things out of the way that could be obstacles for you following him and uh, engaging with the Psalms. So I'm excited for what he's going to share this morning and this evening with us. And would you just open your hearts as widely as you can to what God's wanting to do with us today, what he's wanting to say and how he's wanting to use Brad. Come on up, Brad. Let's give him some love as he comes up today. What up? It's good to see you guys. Oh, I, these are, it's so bittersweet to be back in San Diego um, for many reasons, but every time we tell people that we moved from San Diego back to the Valley, people are like, sorry, it sounded like you said you moved from San Diego. It's like, yeah, we did. And they're like, I'm sorry. I, I'm just really sorry. And so every time we're back here, it's like, I miss this place so much. I miss you guys a ton. Um, I know that is weird for some of you. You're like, you've never seen me before, but uh, my wife and I, we were. We're a part of the original crew that helped plant Restored Uptown before it was Uptown. It was the only Restored. So um, unfortunately, my wife, Sarah, is not here with us today. Uh, my son is in a club basketball league. I know we've become those parents. God help us. Um, but he has a tournament tournament in Irvine that was supposed to be in San Diego this weekend. So we planned everything perfectly. And then the tournament got switched to Irvine. So um, she's not here. They're playing. Um, it should be fun. But I love you. I'm going to pray, and we're going to dive on in and have some fun in the Psalms. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your kindness over us. Uh, To see some faces that, yeah, I I know that you love each and every one of these people. Uh, it's, It's beautiful to see what you have done, what you continue to do through this community. Thank you for the gift of being here. Would you, would you help us right now, Holy Spirit? Would you open our hearts and our minds to, to you and what you have for us today? Uh, we love you. That's in your beautiful name. Amen. Amen. So I, I want to start with um, a confession <clears throat> that when I heard you all were in Psalms and I was going to be a part of that Psalm series, my first reaction was, bummer. Um, now 
I love the Bible. I really do. Even though I forgot to bring mine and I'm borrowing grunts. I really, I, I love the Bible. Um, and I usually get accused of saying everything's my favorite. Like usually when I'm preaching a pastor, I'm like, oh, this is my favorite story of Jesus. Oh, this is my favorite verse in Romans. Oh, this is my favorite. You're like, but, but, but honestly, when it comes to Psalms, I've had a difficulty. I've had difficulty with it. Um, now I'm not going to blame that on Psalms. I'm going to blame that on my issues. Um, one of the things about the, the book of Psalms is you guys have been going through for the last month and a half or so. Uh, Psalms is a deeply emotional book. Um, there's a lot of confusion in Psalms. Like in Psalm, when I'm in my Bible, like I literally put question marks next to things that I don't understand. I've got a lot of question marks in Psalms. When, I, when I'm reading Psalms, it's like, what is, like, what is happening right here? And so I've got question marks in there, but there's deep, deep emotion um, and, and thank God for Andy Rogers. He's helped me become more emotionally mature over the last decade. Uh, but, but I still have struggled. When, when I'm reading and experiencing deep highs or deep lows, there's part of me that has, has a difficult time experiencing and, and relating to it. Uh, this goes back even to, you know, me 12 years ago. My wife and I have been married 12 years um, but 13 years ago, we started doing like the premarital counseling stuff. And um, Andy and Jackie Rogers actually did some of our premarital counseling. Uh, but before them, we actually were with another couple. We had to like test out the waters, you know. <clears throat> and uh, we were with one couple and they had, they were very big fans of like the Myers-Briggs test. Uh, I don't know if you've done the Myers-Briggs. I don't understand it fully, but I know enough that when we took the Myers-Briggs to figure out whether or not we were compatible, which we needed to be compatible because we had already planned the wedding, things were moving forward real quick. So I was like, I don't know what this test is gonna do, but whatever. Um, one, of the, one of the things was on thinking and feeling. Um, and, and, and pardon me if you're like a Myers-Briggs expert, here's how I understand it. Thinking, if you score high in thinking, it means you tend to make your decisions purely through logic and reason. And if you are high in feeling, you make decisions while thinking about the feelings of others. I think that's it, it's, it's feelings-based. Um, when I took the Myers-Briggs with my fiance, Sarah at the time, um, she's now my wife, I, I scored, it was out of 24, I scored 23 thinking and one feeling. My wife scored 24 feeling, <laughs> zero thinking. We're like, is this going to be a problem? He's like, for decades. It was like, and, 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 and it has. And by God's grace, uh, we call it sanctification, but I'm becoming more of a feeler. She's becoming more of a thinker. Um, but, but when we read the Psalms, there's a lot of feeling. And, and, and a thinker like myself sometimes feels uncomfortable with it. And there's some confusing parts of it. And so today, instead of what you guys have generally been doing, kind of working through a full Psalm, I'm going to kind of step back. Um, and, and address some of these difficulties that I've found in the Psalms and how God has helped me get through them so that I can engage more deeply with him. B because the Psalms is it's beautiful. It, it is the prayer book of the church. Um, they are prayers that we need to understand, that we need to be able to pray deeply. And so for us, I don't want us to just have question marks in our Bible. I want us to, yes, put question marks in there, but also figure out what do we do with these things. And so I'm going to kind of just tackle a few big questions. And hopefully some of them may not resonate with you. Hopefully most of them do. Some of you be like, oh, I never thought about that. Like, yeah, start thinking about that. And then let's, let's roll through it. So here was the first question that as I began to engage with the Psalms, one of my biggest questions was, why do the psalmists curse their enemies when Jesus taught us to love our enemies? 
Why do the psalmists constantly curse their enemies when Jesus taught us to love our enemies? These are called imprecatory psalms. There's about 20 out of the 150 psalms are the psalmists cursing their enemies. Don't believe me? Here we go. Psalm 109. If you got a Bible, run over there. Grant doesn't have one. Judge him. I have it. Um, Psalm 109, verse 1 to 15. God of my praise, do not be silent. Good so far. For wicked and deceitful mouths open against me. They speak against me with lying tongues. They surround me with hateful words and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I continue to pray. They repay me evil for good and hatred for my love. Set a wicked person over him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he's judged, let him be found guilty and let his prayer be counted as sin. Let his days be few. Let another take over his position. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Yeah, you thought you had some good comebacks. That's, that's in there. Verse 10. Let his children wander as beggars, searching for food afar from their demolished homes. Let a creditor seize all he has. Let strangers plunder what he has worked for. Let no one show him kindness and let no one be gracious to his fatherless children. Um, Let the line of his descendants be cut off. Let their name be blotted out in the next generation. Let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord and do not let his mother's sins be blotted out. Let their sins always remain before the Lord and let him remove all memory of them from the earth. Amen. <laughs> right? Like, can you imagine if Marielle, she's like open singing, like, hey, everyone, let's sing a little prayer. And she starts praying this this morning. Like, if you didn't know that was in the Psalms, like, imagine she was like, hey, I wrote this prayer last night in my journal. Let me just read it to y'all. You'd be like, yikes. Like, let's pray for her. <laughs> What's going on here? This is in the Bible. Like, like, what is this doing in the scriptures when, when Jesus so clearly teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount that we're supposed to love our enemies? So how do we, how do we deal with this? Um, because again, I, I hope that over the coming years and decades, you will be people of the Psalms. You will learn to love to pray the Psalms. But as you do that, you're going to come across things like this. I think most of us, if we're honest, if we're in our Devo time in the morning and you read this, you're like, and the next one. <laughs> like, let's just keep going. Pretend that's not there. It's there. So what do we do with it? Let me, let me give a few things. Um, the first thing I, I think that we need to understand in context with the psalmists that have these imprecatory Psalms, their enemies are real bad people. I know that might not be politically correct to say, aren't we all bad? Okay. When we talk about our enemies today, oftentimes what we think about is like our annoying neighbor or, or, or our, our difficult coworker, which those people can be our enemies. And some of you are like, no, 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 I've, I've got serious enemies. Okay, good. What the psalmist is talking about oftentimes, especially in here, and then in the Psalm 137, that, that's kind of a famous psalm where, where the psalmist cries out, that their babies would be dashed upon the rocks. 
you're like, what is, like, who prays something so horrific that, like, have you ever wanted someone's baby to be thrown up against the rocks? Here's why the psalmists pray that. When the Babylonians came in and, and destroyed Israel, what they would often do in times of war is those who would flee the city, once they were captured, they were used as catapult ammunition into the city gates. The reason the psalmists are probably praying, let their babies be dashed upon the rocks, is because they have seen their own children dashed upon the rocks. This isn't like your neighbor who leaves his trash can out, so it's hard to find parking. These are men and women who have come into your city and raped and pillaged and taken everything you've owned, and for some, you've lost your own child at the rocks. This is what the prayer of the psalmist is saying. God, would you destroy them? Now here, now, now does it make it okay? Well, here's the other part. What's beautiful about the psalms that I've come to understand over the years is that the psalms are unfiltered prayers because they know they're talking to a, a God who understands them. Most of us struggle with prayer because we lie so much in prayer. We are bored out of our minds in prayer because we never tell the truth in prayer. We're like, dear God, I just want you to bless my neighbor today. Thank you for the beautiful sunshine. And my life is going so well. Amen. That's, that's most of our prayer life. And we don't know why we're so bored in prayer. Because we aren't praying prayers like this. We don't bring the true, honest us to God. We're like, well, God already knows everything. He does know everything. God knew the desires of the psalmist in all of their prayers. Yet God wants to encounter you in your honesty. Prayer comes to life when you're able to cry out to God and say, I wish you would kill my neighbor. Now, now you don't go there, but you can be honest with God to the degree that you're going, this is what's true in my heart. Because here's the reality. You and I are called to love our enemies. Jesus is crystal clear about that. But you cannot truly love your enemy until you've dealt honestly with God about the hatred for your enemy in your heart. Most of us, when we talk, our church right now is going through the Sermon on the Mount this whole year in our gospel communities. We did a whole section on the enemies. Most people have a hard time even saying they have enemies. It's wild. Like, I just love everybody. It's like, really? I see the way you treat your spouse. <laughs> Are you sure? Like, like, sometimes your spouse is your enemy. Sometimes your kids are your enemy. Sometimes your family members, your friends, whoever, like they're your enemy. You don't want good for them. But we would never tell that to God. Because we smile and we say the right things. God, through the imprecatory Psalms, is inviting us into an honest prayer life where we go, I can't stand them right now, Jesus. You know the ugliness that has gone in my heart for them. I know you're calling me to love them, but I can't right now. And the only way you will move in love toward your enemy is by first giving it to Jesus and being honest with him about your hatred for them. And as you dwell on what God does with enemies, when you yourself were an enemy, when I, when I make my wife an enemy and I go, this is how I should treat my enemy and I begin to bring God into my plan, God lovingly and gently reminds me of that when I was his enemy, what did he do for me? He laid down his own life for me. So I can be honest about my hatred at times for people. 
But it's as I move through that hatred, I gaze upon the cross of Jesus Christ and see a God who loved me when I was at my worst, when I was his enemy, and he begins to change my heart and transform me. Go, you're not very different than them. You're just like them. It might look a little different, but man, you're just like them, and I'm inviting you into a life of loving them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a quote. Dang it, I left it in my bag. So you're going to miss out on it. Did I give you the Bonhoeffer quote? I think I did. Okay. Yes. Thank you. This is Bonhoeffer in um, Life Together. He says, can we then pray the imprecatory Psalms insofar as we are sinners and express evil thoughts in a prayer of vengeance? We dare not do so. But insofar as Christ is in us, the Christ who took all the vengeance of God upon himself, who meet who met God's vengeance in our stead, who thus, stricken by the wrath of God and in no other way could forgive his enemies, who himself suffered the wrath that his enemies might go free, we too, as members of this Jesus Christ, can pray these psalms through Jesus Christ from the heart of Jesus Christ. So me and my ugliness and wickedness, I better not pray this song. But, but I can go, okay, Jesus, change my heart from here's what I want to see happen to my enemies into a person who sees what you do with your enemies in love. So it's one of the ways we, we deal with the imprecatory Psalms. Here's another question that as I, I wrestled through the Psalms that I kept coming across, why do the psalmists find so much joy in God's commands when if we're honest, we find them to be quite burdensome, boring, and outdated? Have you, have you read through the Psalms and they just can't get over the laws of God? The command, like Psalm 119. Have you read that thing? The longest chapter in the Bible. The whole thing is a praise about God's commandments. When's the last time we sang a song like that? And guys, this is pre-New Testament. This is before the Psalms. When they're praising God about the law, do you know what books that include? Leviticus. Deuteronomy. And they can't get over it. They're just singing God's praise. They're like, you are so good. Psalm 119, David, he goes, oh, I meditate on your word day and night. In 119, he says, I wake up at midnight just to praise you for your just judgments. Anyone been there? <laughs> Bathroom break at midnight? You're like, I just need to spend some time thanking God for Leviticus. It's just so good. It's so rich. You're marrying your spouse, like flashlight reading at 3 a.m. Like, what are you doing? Go to bed. I'm in Leviticus 11. Just a page turner. I'm getting to the purification laws on what to do when I touch a dead animal. Hold on, honey. Like, like this is causing worship. Like, like how is that a thing? Um, here are a couple reasons why you and I are, are honestly quite unimpressed with the laws of God, Old Testament and New Testament. One of the main reasons we, we find a, a lack of joy in God's commandments is because we are in a humanistic, secular society that has very much robbed God's moral framework and acted like, hey, we came up with this ourselves. Rejecting God, as Mark Sayer says, the, our, our world wants the kingdom of God without the king. And that's, that's humanism. That, that, that's secularism. That's what we're living in in San Diego. We, 
we think of things like e equal rights, the, the equality of people and human rights, we think of those things as like, no, duh. Read history, friends. Those concepts are not no, duh. Th those concepts are because of the Judeo-Christian framework going public in the world. To prove that, I have a few quotes. Um, the first two are hardcore atheists that reject everything of Jesus, but here's what they say. The first one we'll look at is uh, Yuval Noah Harari in his book, Sapiens, which is tremendous. He says this, according to the science of biology, people were not created. They've evolved, and they certainly did not evolve to be equal. The idea of equality is inextricably intertwined with the idea of creation. The Americans got the idea of equality from Christianity, which argues that every person has a divinely created soul and that all souls are equal before God. However, if we do not believe in the Christian myths about God, creation and souls, what does it mean that all people are equal? Evolution is based on difference, not on equality. This, this is an atheist historian being honest, going, we don't have such thing like, like you don't have equality if there's just no God and there's just purely evolution without God. Here's another one from Luke Ferry, uh, another atheist philosopher. Christianity revolutionized the history of thought. For the first time in human history, liberty rather than nature had become the foundation of morality. At the same time, the idea of the equal dignity of all human beings makes its first appearance and Christianity was to become the precursor of modern democracy. I've got more, but we'll just stop there. These are atheists going, hey, read history and realize that these ideas of equality and human rights, the air we all breathe in San Diego, we go, of course, because we're so smart in this 21st century and we're, you know, these are from the scriptures. We've just cut God off and pretended that he's this antiquated being out there who's judgmental and whatever. And we're like, look how smart we are. This all comes from the foundation of the Bible. These are atheists saying it. Tom Holland in his book, Dominion, has, has the same exact point. So one of the reasons why we're not amazed by God's laws is because we think San Diego created them. We think America created them. We're like, well, good job, America. It's like, no, 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 no. God created the idea of equality and human dignity. Those are his ideas. And remove him from the equation and watch what will happen. So we must have an understanding that God's laws are, are, are for us, they're for the good of people. But one of the other main reasons why we have a difficult time taking such deep joy in God's commands is this. Most of us, if we're honest, are one foot in and one foot out. Jesus says in John 10 that he has come to bring fullness of life. Fullness of life. The abundance of life. But, but here's what he doesn't do. He doesn't have like a thing, like a package or a Christmas gift called abundant life, and he just throws it out to you. You know, catch it, you're like, whoa, abundant life, this is amazing. He is abundant life himself. And as we keep company with him, as we trust him, as we enjoy him, as we obey him, we begin to feel the fullness and joy of his commands. First John says his commands are not burdensome. We find them burdensome because we don't fully obey them. 
we like 50-50 obey them, and then we find them burdensome. We, we hear sermon after sermon of what we're supposed to do, but we don't do it, and we're like, this is hard. Yeah, it is. Perfect example, this happened recently. We're going through a sermon series in L.A. Uh, on character formation, and I did a whole sermon on honesty and speaking the truth. I, man, God did something in that. Like, like the amount of confessions that came out that week were gnarly. One of which, a guy came to me later, newer in the church, and he, and he says, hey man, I need to talk to you about the sermon that, that you preached last week. And, and I was like, yeah, wh- what happened? He said, um, I mean, God was just speaking to me, and I had a lot of stuff that I needed to confess to my wife. Um, and, and I was terrified. His wife doesn't even come to the church with him, and, and, and so... He, he was like, I was, I was really nervous. She knew that I like, struggled with lust, but I've never actually told her what that means. And so after the sermon on Sunday, I just went home and I told her everything. He says it was a, it was a rough day, really, really hard. It was sad. She was angry, all this stuff. He says, but then it became the greatest week of our entire marriage. He's like, just thank you for pushing me to be honest and walk in the light. Yeah, here's a man who didn't just hear a sermon on be honest. He took God up on his word that life in the light is better, even though it's terrifying. Most of us know that. We're like, mm-hmm, it's good to live in the light as I'm walking in darkness. What a burden. Oh, it is. It's absolutely burdensome. But when God goes, Come out into the light and trust me. And we do it and we walk in obedience. We begin to feel that his commandments are not burdensome. Like I see this in my own life. There are seasons, man, where I'm, I'm just pursuing. Like I just feel like, yes, Jesus is all I want. Like I am saying yes to him in everything. And I'm experiencing this fullness of life. And then there's other seasons I'm not talking about like blatant sin. I'm just talking about like kind of coasting like your average Christian. Like, I'll just take it easy for a little while. You know, a little bit of greed, a little bit of gluttony, a little bit of gossip. Like, I'll just, just a little bit, you know. And I find him to be a burdensome taskmaster when I'm in those seasons. Like, hey, get off my back. I'm just doing, who cares how much I spent on this meal? I, I didn't mean it. It wasn't gossip. I was just, you know, I was telling them the truth about the situation. And, but when I'm all in, man, I experience his love. I experience his grace. I, I, I had a, a Lyft driver take me to the train station this morning. It was just this reminder, man. Like, like I, don't, I don't always do this. And actually, I was planning on just being quiet. I needed to pray and get ready for this morning. But I get in, and he just wanted to talk. And I'm like, all right, Jesus, do something. As we're talking, he just starts opening up. Just starts sharing about parenting and <clears throat> all the stuff. And I, I've literally just been constantly praying for him this morning because his life's a mess. He just was he's just sharing. I told him I'm a Christian and all this stuff, and he's just sharing what a mess his life is in. And I'm just sitting there going, like, Jesus, you're so gracious to me. Like, like these commands, what he's trying, he's how he's trying to navigate his life on his own. He's so lost and he's so confused. And I'm like, oh, I mean, some of the basic, I li- he asked me about marriage. He's like, how do you do it? And I just explained a few basic things. He's like, I've never heard that before in my life. I just talked about how I can forgive my wife because Jesus has forgiven me of everything. He's like, that sounds amazing. 
I was like, yeah, it was hard. But it, like, like, yeah, I haven't even thought about how amazing that is. And I'm like, these are God's laws. They're not to burden us. They're not to crush us. They're to set us free. And as we read them, we'll, we'll enter into what the psalmist say. Let me just read real quick. I forgot to read it. Psalm 19, verse 7. Look, look, at, look at this. Psalm 19, 7 to 10. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. That's what I felt today talking to this driver. He, he treated me like I was the wisest human being who's ever lived. I'm like, it's all here in the scriptures. This is what obedience looks like. But this is what happens. Verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. They are more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold, and sweeter than honey dripping from a honeycomb. The dude who picked me up was in a brand new Mercedes. It was one of the nicest cars I've ever been in. But as I'm talking to him, I'm going, Jesus' laws are better than gold and silver. I'd forsake it all to know him and what he has for my life than all this stuff. You can have all of it. But if you don't have him, you don't walk in obedience and trust, who cares? You're lost. And so would we be a people who are all in trusting and knowing that he is good, that he loves us? And we go, as we walk with him, we'll experience that joy. Okay, one more. How can the psalmists constantly refer to themselves as pure, blameless, and righteous when we know everyone sins? You read that in the Psalms? Look at this one, Psalm 18. Oh, you could keep there in your Bible. Psalm 18, verse 20. <laughs> this is David, who if you know anything about David, God bless him, had a wild story. But, but this is kind of pre the, the real chaos. Psalm 18, verse 20. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. He repaid me according to the cleanness of my hands. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not turned from my God to wickedness. Indeed, I let all his ordinances guide me and have not disregarded his statutes. I was blameless toward him and kept myself from iniquity. So the Lord repaid me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. Anybody pray that prayer ever? I mean, it's in here. Can you imagine if I opened my prayer like that? God, thank you that my life's amazing because I'm such a good dude. My hands are clean. I'm a righteous man and I never forsake your statutes. Thank you for me, Lord. That's the vibe you get here. I mean, David, he's just like overwhelmed with the cleanliness of his hands and his obedience of the statutes of God. And he's like, God repays me for my obedience. Most of us are like, I'm just a sinful worm. I'm awful. Can we pray a prayer like this? Here's, here's where we go wrong. David used words like clean, pure, blameless. He does not use a word like perfection. There is a difference, biblically speaking. 
Perfection is you never, ever, ever sin. You're not going to find that. Pure, blameless, clean, and righteous are biblical words for following and obeying God. Hear me. Even after you sin, what that looks like is repentance. Most of us don't think we could ever say something. If you're a Christian in the room today, you're like, I could never say I'm clean or righteous or pure or blameless. First, read the New Testament. Paul seems to think you can. And, and second, here's David before the cross and resurrection and Holy Spirit fully indwelling all believers. And he's going, I'm clean. I'm righteous. Why can he say that? Here's why he can say it. Because when he obeys God, he actually believes he's righteous. Most of us were like, I obeyed God, but I'm still just a pathetic loser. Guys, in this specific story, it's right after he spares the life of Saul. He could have killed King Saul, taken the throne. David does a ridiculously beautiful thing and spares the life of Saul. And David's got no issue going, that was good. Because I've let myself do this over the years. I, I, I used to think like, everything in me is tarnished, it's bad, I'm wicked, it's ugly, it's always wrong. Guys, I've had meetings sometimes where someone is angry, yelling at me. And I feel like in the grace of God, filled with the Spirit, I'm able to love them well. And I walk out of that meeting, I go, Jesus, that was you. Thank you. I feel like I had a righteous meeting right there. Was I perfect in every single way? I don't think I was perfect in every single way, but I handled that incredibly well. It was by your Spirit. Thank you. That I can walk out of there and go, I feel righteous. Yes, are we clothed in the righteousness of Christ? Yes, but we also can be righteous by doing righteous deeds. We've got to get that. We've got to get that because I think so often we're just like, oh, I'm a pathetic loser. Everything I do is bad. I'm wrong. Bad, bad, bad me. And it's like, well, maybe that's why you keep acting that way. There's a sense, man, where I go, Jesus is inviting me into a righteous life. I'm going to be talking about it a lot more tonight. I know glory and glorification may not be the biggest selling words, but I promise you this can be life-changing. When you grasp that you can do something that's good and holy and pure, that gets God to look at you and go, well done, faithful servant. Well done. It'll change your life. And, and this is what the psalmist is doing. This is what John tells us in 1 John. Can we throw that passage up real quick? 1 John 1, 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Okay? Good. So if you're like, I'm perfect. I've actually met people like this. Take them to 1 John 1, 8. They're like, you're a liar and you're a deceiver. So we're not perfect. But if, so if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. But, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Brothers and sisters, some of you still living in guilt and shame over sins that you have confessed to God and to your community. And you're like, I just still, I'm, I'm unclean and I'm not righteous. Believe the word of God. If you have confessed your sins to God and in community, you're clean. You can walk out and go, I'm now righteous. 
Not because your act was righteous. It was unrighteous. You required the death of Jesus Christ, the truly righteous one, to pay for your sins, to cover you, to forgive you, to love you. But he did that in joy. He went to the cross for you. When you receive his life and his death and his resurrection and the Spirit of God, and you walk in the light and you confess your sins, you confess your unrighteousness and your uncleanliness, you're clean and righteous. You have to walk in the righteousness that God has for you. Last night, we, 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 um, we were hanging out. My son was in this basketball tournament. And we ended up staying at a Best Western. Not great, but a bunch of other, it was a miscommunication. A bunch of other families stayed at a really nice hotel, and we stayed at this hotel, and whatever. We saved 100 bucks. But um, they all said, hey, come over to our hotel. So we go over to their hotel. To park at their hotel was $50. I wanted to cry. I almost did. We were, like, going to be shady and parking, like, a lot next door and, you know, buy a cup from the habit. And they're like, oh, we're, we're customers, you know. But I just felt, I was like, yeah, just, we, like, let's count our losses. Let's go. Let's, we're living on mission. Let's go hang at the pool party. We're going to be there. Park, you know, do the whole thing. On the way out, I'm like, Jesus, would you, oh, here's what happened. One of the guys, he said, hey, let me, I'll scan my card to get you out for free. You don't have to pay. And everything in me was like, yes. <laughs> he said, they, people were trying to live on mission too, right? He was like, he knows I'm a pastor. He's like, yeah, save me 50 bucks. Lie and you know, we'll take advantage of this hotel. And I just, I, I felt like God was like, hey, just no. Like, like you saw the sign, you paid, you're parked. It's going to cost 50 bucks. Like, okay. So I said, I love you, bro. Thank you. It's good. He could not believe that I was turning him down. He was like, dude, who cares? I'll just scan it. We'll get out. It's fine. I was like, it's good, dude. We enjoyed their stuff. We're going to pay. Love you. Appreciate it. We go down, as we're going down the elevator, I'm like, Jesus, would you just somehow just get rid of this $50 fee? Go down to the front desk. I said, hi, can I pay for my parking? She's like, uh, it'll get tacked on once you leave. I was like, oh, we're, vi we're visiting some friends. We're at the pool party. Um, can we pay parking? She's like, just, just, it's fine. You're good. Just when you leave, just press the need assistance and we'll, we'll buzz you out. And you'll be free today. I was like, come on. <laughs> I was so, and I just, thank you, Jesus. And I'm not promising. You might have to pay 50 bucks. I, I was, I was, I counted the cost. I knew it might cost that, but I felt God's pleasure in that moment. I just felt like I, I could have taken advantage. A non-Christian dude gives me 50 bucks to get out for free. Like, okay, there's a good witness for Jesus. I can trust him, and he takes care of me, and I walk out, and I'm like, I walked righteously in that moment. It was a righteous deed, and I, I, can, I can say that, and I don't like, oh, I'm a, you know, oh. no, and, and I did, and I just got to enjoy him through that step of obedience. Some of you are like, that sounds small. It is small in some sense, but, but it's a big deal when we live our lives like that. We go, he, he sees all things. He's inviting me into a life of always walking in the light. When the sign says $50, I pay $50, or I don't go. And when I do, and he blesses me with something like that, or even if I pay the 50 bucks, I still walk out going, I, I made the righteous decision. I honored my God by doing what was right. And I can say what the psalmist says here. Thank you, God, that you awarded me according to my deeds. I believe that's what happened last night. Oh, that sounds like karma. It's not. It's his grace. But this is what he invites us into. So here's the last thing. I said there was one more, but there's kind of one more. We're about to go into a time of worship. This will be short. We're going to sing musical worship. And one of the other things you're going to see over and over and over in the Psalms is this. God commanding you to praise him. 
And for some of us, it just feels weird. It's like, why does God demand me to praise him? C.S. Lewis writes a ton about this in the reflections on the Psalms brilliantly. But, but, but here's what it is. For some of us, we see God saying, hey, praise me. We see, it's like an egomaniac idea. Like God's up in the clouds and he like needs you to praise him, right? Like a little earlier when we're singing, like he's looking at you. He's like, you're ill, sing louder. Come on now. I need, I need the, the praise juice to high, get higher. You know, it's like, what, like, what does he need from me? Here's, here's the beautiful thing. The God of the scriptures doesn't need a single thing from you. <laughs> In the Psalms, it says, if I was hungry, would I come and ask you? I, I have cattle on a thousand hills. Like, like even when we take the offering, it's not like God's like, I need your 20 bucks. Please, please, please. The mission of God hinges on you. He's like, I'm going to be fine without you, but I want you. And it would be evil of God to allow you and I to praise anything other than him as supreme. God would not be a gracious, kind God if he was like, hey, I don't want to tell you to praise me. Because that might sound weird. I'd rather you worship money. I'd rather you worship career. I'd rather you worship your family. I'd rather you worship your image. I'll just stay over here and you just throw me in whenever you want. God goes, I want you to experience true joy. And the only way you'll experience true joy in this life is if you put what is most praiseworthy as number one in your life. And God goes, that's me. He's not an egomaniac. He doesn't need your praise. You need to praise him. You need to put him as number one in your life, both through your words and your deeds. And he's inviting you and I into that. And throughout the Psalms, they say, praise him, praise him, praise him. And we underline it and we put exclamation marks and go, I am living well and experiencing the abundant life when I see him as number one over everything else. Would we, as we go into this next time of communion and praising, reorient our loves? For some of us, there needs to be some serious repentance. Jesus, you have not been number one. I've had so many other things as number one, but he's inviting you today. Confess, repent, put him back as number one, and experience the joy of worshiping that which is number one as number one. Let's pray. That we, we can bring our anger our fury, our anxiety, our sadness, our joy, all of us to you. You're not nervous about it. You're not scared or threatened by any of our emotions. Jesus, I, I pray for us today uh, as a community. I pray where there needs to be confession and things brought into the light, that we would trust that your commands are not burdensome. Wherever we're kind of wavering one foot in, one foot out, whether it's with our finances or our sexuality or our career or our marriage or relationships, whatever it is, Jesus, that we would go, okay, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to go all in on what you say is good all in on what you say will bring me freedom. Because we've tried everything else. And it comes up wanting. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. We love you. It's in your beautiful name. Amen.